sort of the handwriting on the wall that we're seeing, and you maybe have, have read articles on this too, is that the backcountry retailers are selling out of gear already. There, there are some who said they have sold out for the year, both retailers and, manu- and manufacturers. So that tells me um, this could be a rather uh, interesting year for people going in the backcountry who really are probably not too prepared to do it. And so we want to try to get the message out on what they need to consider. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. As always, this is your host, Shanti, and I hope you're all doing well and enjoying yourselves as we start to head into the winter months. And as part of heading into the winter months, we're launching our winter series here at Out and Back, where for the next few months, we're going to be talking about winter topics with an extra emphasis on backcountry skiing and backcountry safety in the winter. So to kick off our winter series, Mary and I are going to be sitting down and talking with Charles Pittman, who's a mission coordinator for Summit County Search and Rescue and fittingly, Summit County, Colorado. We're going to learn from Charles how it's already been a record-setting year for search and rescue calls in Summit County, and we still have two months to go in 2020. Branching off of that, we're then going to talk about what can be expected in the backcountry this winter, what you can do to make your backcountry winter experience safer, the classes you should take, and the essentials you should bring into the backcountry in winter, and we'll even talk a bit about avalanche safety. Some great info for everybody on today's show, and we're glad you're here for it. Before we jump in, I want to talk about one of the most important essentials you should bring with you into the backcountry, and that's a good offline navigation tool. And wouldn't you know it, Gaia GPS is the perfect backcountry offline navigation tool to help keep you safe and know your location at all times. With a Gaia GPS premium membership, you'll have access to hundreds of offline maps, including several that are perfect for winter backcountry trips. Specifically, Gaia has maps for slope angle shading, avalanche forecasting, and snow forecasting. And all of these maps can be layered on top of your favorite GPS maps, including USGS, US Forest Service, Nat Geo Trails Illustrated, and of course the excellent Gaia Topo base map. All of these important maps are at your disposal with a Gaia GPS premium membership. And right now, you're in luck. Because Gaia is offering a discount of up to 50, 50 on a premium membership for listeners of this podcast. Because let's be honest, if you're listening to this podcast, you're awesome, so you deserve a discount. So to claim your 50% discount, awesome podcast listener, just go to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast. That's G-A-I-A-G-P-S.com slash podcast. And last but not least, if you're a member of Search and Rescue, first of all, thank you for what you do. But we wanted to let you know that you and your entire team can access Gaia GPS for free. Just go to GaiaGPS.com slash emergency response to get started. All right, here we go with Charles Pittman of Summit County Search and Rescue. Joining us today, Charles Pittman, Mission Coordinator of Summit County Search and Rescue. Thanks for joining us today, Charles. You're very welcome. Happy to be here. So we want to start, I always like uh, the history angle, um, me being personally a history fan. Uh, let's start with the Summit County Search and Rescue background and history. What is the background history of Summit County Search and Rescue? Our team goes back to 1972 when it was formed and incorporated as a nonprofit in 1973. And the way Search and Rescue runs in Colorado is that we fall under, statutorily, we fall under the Sheriff's Department. 
And every county works a little differently. Um, we are very fortunate in our county. We have a very close working relationship with our sheriff's department. And they let us pretty much um, do everything. Some, some counties are a little bit different. The sheriff takes a hand in it. In ours, we work very closely with some special operations sheriffs. But other than that, um, we have our own board of directors. We run all our own missions. And... Uh, and we're, we're quite busy over the years. When I first joined 15 years ago, I was seeing 40, 50 missions. And now, which we'll probably talk about here shortly, is we're seeing 150, 170, 180 missions a year. So it's, it's ramped up a lot. So, Charles, I spoke to you, um, I think it was in the spring, right when the ski area shut down. And it seemed to me you guys were under big strain with all the backcountry skiers. Can you kind of recap that for us? Yes, it, it really kicked off when people were getting a little antsy, and understandably so, with the virus and having uh, to be kept at home and sort of quarantined. And a lot of them, especially from the front range, what we call a front range in Colorado, which is the greater sort of Colorado Springs, Denver, Fort Collins area, wanted to get away from home. And so they would end up coming up to the mountains for to do a lot of day uh, day trips. Uh, a lot of them had never done that before because they were used to skiing at the local ski areas. And the result was that the parking areas on some of the passes like Loveland Pass and, uh, and some of the, a lot of the trailheads were just inundated with both skiers and boarders and traffic so bad that the, that the local law enforcement was having to give tickets in tow. So um, everybody was coming to the backcountry. Um, most of them were ill-equipped. And that's what concerned us the most. And so what do you mean by ill-equipped? Like, what do you see out there? Well, as an example, I was on call as my, on my uh, one-week rotation as mission coordinator at the time. And uh, I sat in my car up at the top of Loveland Pass and put my avalanche beacon on my dashboard to see how many people that walked by had avalanche beacons. And I think I was up there for about three hours. And of the one or 200 people or more that walked by, one per person had an avi beacon. Nobody had pro poles. Nobody had shovels. And and you would talk to people and they say, well, I do ski this quite a bit. And so I, I know it. And I'm just going to stick over here thinking that just because they've skied it before that it's safe for them. Um, and most of the rest of the people were just, they, I think they were unaware of what an avalanche beacon even was. I like this. You kind of had like an undercover avalanche beacon operation yeah. <laughs> going on up there at the summit. <laughs> well, and we're, we're, we're talking about actually doing something like that, but more formal this coming year. We're working on a survey where we can actually go up to one or two of the heavy hitter places, Loveland Pass being one, and just taking a survey of where are you from, how, what kind of background do you have in backcountry skiing, uh, and boarding. Do you have what kind of equipment? Do you have? How long have you been doing this? And see if we can get some more definitive data uh, on on just what the demographics are of the people who go in the backcountry. That would be interesting. I know one thing that happens here in Montana, and one place that I ski a lot, which is Beehive Basin. Um, we do have uh, like a beacon check station. So like right there at the trailhead you walk up to this little post and it tells you if your beacon's working or not. Do you have stuff like that in your county? Uh, it's it's interesting that you should mention that. The first I actually saw those was a, a large beacon check sign in Switzerland when I was over there. And we have had some discussions actually within the last week and a half about doing that here. As it turns out, uh, there is a, a group of snowmobilers throughout the state and they have actually 
put several of these signs up with uh, approval of the landowners and or the Forest Service to do that. And so we are um, strongly considering doing something similar in two or three of our heavy, heavy hitter areas here uh, to see if that might help. Interesting. And so how did that play out for you last year when you had so many people up on the mountain from the city that you say were ill-equipped or unprepared for avalanche um, conditions? Did it make your numbers go up for rescue? Yes, in the in the spring it definitely did. We had a lot more rescues than we normally do. This this the spring is is a, a pretty interesting time of year. A lot of people think that the sun's coming out and, the, and maybe the avalanche conditions are settling down and things aren't as dangerous. When in fact, we typically have um, if we have a lot of uh, avalanche calls, we often have them in the springtime. So we did have a lot uh, lost people. Most of them uh, were we, we had several for injuries. We were fortunate last year. We didn't have a lot of avalanche calls. Um, and so we were fortunate in that regard. And of course, every year is different in how the snow sets up. How was last year in terms of uh, weather conditions? Anything unusual about it or was it kind of run of the mill? Uh, I think it turned out pretty average. We we did have some uh, some weeks where we had some pretty decent snowfall. Uh, then it sort of petered out as the, as the spring wore on. It, it um, I think it was a frustration for a lot of people because the snow did kick up and they could not go to their ski areas because they were closed and they still wanted to get out. And And we anticipate the same thing happening this year. We don't know exactly what the effects of the virus are going to be on these ski areas and exactly how they're going to operate. Uh, I've heard different ideas from different ski areas on, on exactly how they're going to do this. Are they going to take reservations? Are they not? How are they going to cut the ticket sales? Are they going to cut the ticket sales? So... I think what we're sort of the handwriting on the wall that we're seeing, and you maybe have, have read articles on this too, is that the backcountry retailers are selling out of gear already. There, there are some who said they have sold out for the year, both retailers and, manu and manufacturers. So that tells me um, this could be a rather uh, interesting year for people going the backcountry who really are probably not too prepared to do it. And so we want to try to get the message out on what they need to consider. What exactly were your calls total last year? Last year, we had right around 150 calls, uh, calls to dispatch. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we put uh, teams in the field in every one of those, although a lot of them we did. Um, some of those can be uh, can be solved by a mission coordinator like myself uh, sitting at my laptop um, trying to get somebody out of trouble. But we had about 150 calls. And for the five years previous to that, we were averaging about roughly about 100 calls a year. So last year it ramped up to 150. This year we're we're pushing 170, 175, and we still have two, two and a half months to go. So it, it's kicking up huge. Before the first big snowfall even, really. Correct. And I looked at your uh, social media, and it just seems like you had a flurry of calls even in the past week. I think there was a rescued mountain biker, a body recovery on a peak, and a lost hiker. Yes. Um, and unfortunately, the way, the way search and rescue works is you might average uh, X number of calls uh, per month, but that doesn't mean they're average. That doesn't mean that they're spread out throughout the month. So you might go a week or a week and a half and get no calls. And you might have one day where you get three calls stacked back to back at the same time. 
And so that really stresses your team uh, and stresses your ability. And, and, and not only does it stress your members, be, uh, but it also stresses your ability to cover it with, with equipment. So, you know, I don't know about Colorado, but up here in Montana, where I'm based, we've had, you know, our first substantial snow. Big sky has got a nice dusting of white on it. Everyone's getting ready to make turns. I'm starting <laughs> to have dreams about skiing already. Um, you know, everybody's ready to go. Does all this kind of hype got you worried about upcoming ski season? Uh, it, it, I, I don't know if worried is the right term. It, it, it might be certainly, um, my antennas are going up about how we need to prepare. We're starting to do our preparations as a team earlier. Uh, of course that's more difficult now. We don't do the types of trainings. We don't have the same types of meetings we had before because we have the COVID, the COVID restrictions and considerations there that, that we take very, very seriously here. We do as a team and we do as a county. And so uh, I, I am concerned about it uh, in that uh, when, we, when you mix the, the hype of sort of, as you say, the first snows and, and people are sort of starting to get amped up, uh, and then you mix that with these uh, articles about how these uh, companies are selling out of backcountry gear, um, yeah, I'm, I, I, my, I'm a bit concerned about what's going to happen this, this winter. Um, in the past year, how has COVID been affecting your operations and like your response time? Yeah, you know, um, obviously it, it it has affected our training, as I mentioned, but it does it does affect our missions. Whereas before, we might do what we call an all call, and so what an all call is is a mission coordinator will put out a call to every member that uh, is available and say, "I need every member that we can get to show up at a certain trailhead." Uh, and bring rescue one and and maybe bring snowmobiles or ATVs. Now we're thinking second about that. We're thinking maybe along the lines of, I need four responders to show up to try to locate this individual or to try to, to, to bring somebody out. The downside of that is that if all of a sudden those individuals get in there and they need more equipment or they need more oxygen, or they need uh, some, some more uh, technical or medical gear, I don't have the backup standing at the trailhead ready to go in to bring this gear into them. So now I might have to do a second all call. So it can, uh, we haven't run into a lot of issues with that, but there's a potential there for it affecting uh, the, the response times for us to get somebody out of the field. So you're talking about kind of these people that that haven't gotten into backcountry before. They're relatively new to the sport. Maybe they're great skiers at the at the resort, and now they're taking that in the backcountry because they want to avoid crowds um, at the established resorts. What what do you think people can do to make their experience safer? Obviously, the best thing they can do is to try to take uh, a backcountry avalanche awareness class, and they don't need to become experts at it. Um, like experts at a, at, on a ski patrol, but to understand uh, safe travel. How do I get into an area? How do I get out? What are the best areas to go to? What, what are this avalanche uh, beacon, pole, and shovel all about? If somebody's buried, how do I find them? How do I, how do I dig them out properly? Um, and it, I think one of the things we are find, finding is that uh, a lot of these classes are filling up very, very quickly. So I'm hoping either some of these companies or some of these organizations can uh, put on more classes or at the very least find somebody 
uh, some, some one of your friends who goes into the backcountry a lot and find out where do, where do you go? Can I can I go in with you the first few times to learn what this is all about? Everything from how do I use my skis in this backcountry gear to how do I choose a safe route? Now the downside of it is you're, you're assuming that your buddy is pretty well versed in the backcountry. Unfortunately, we're finding that a lot of them are not. So, I mean, if you just go to the average trailhead uh, and, and look at the number of people that are uh, properly equipped with a beacon propole and shovel and a, and a shocking number of them or not. Yeah. So that's, that's the basic uh, avalanche equipment that you need, correct? Correct. Yes. At least those. And, and the issue is, I think, with, with, uh, propole, with, uh, with beacons is um, they're getting better all the time for multiple burials. The problem is that they're not necessarily intuitive to use. If you talk to somebody at a, on a ski patrol uh, who's a, an avalanche tech, they will pr- literally practice every single day to try to, um, uh, to try to hone their skills. And they, and they have contests. Rappel Basin has a contest every year. Uh, so they're not necessarily intuitive to use. One of the things that we've uh, worked on and we're going to be implementing again this year is we have a, what we call a beacon park. Totally free. And we set that up and you can go up and you can turn this this device on and you can select anywhere from one to eight or nine or ten beacons. They're all buried and you can go in there with your buddies and sort of make a game of it and get your pro pole out and, and try to find these buried beacons. Uh, and, it's to- and it's totally free. We don't charge a thing for it. Nice. And you have that set up at the pass or where is that? Um, it, in the past, it's been set up um, at the Adventure Park just outside of uh, Frisk excuse me, Frisco, we're trying to find maybe a little bit better area uh, that is a little steeper terrain to, to challenge the, the users a little bit more. But we're getting more and more interest in that every year. And I think it's a good way for people to, before you go into the backcountry, go go work on those skills because they're not, again, they're not necessarily intuitive. This is what I wonder about. Um, how often are are you seeing people taking like the avalanche one class or like a basic class and then they wind up getting themselves into trouble because they think they've got it dialed, but in reality, they just took one class? Well, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. And I think that that is a problem that you know, maybe a little a little knowledge is is sometimes a little dangerous, too. Um, I think what we're hoping for is, well, one of the things I think I'm seeing is that more and more people are getting uh, taking more of the classes. They're getting and they're getting heavier and deeper. They're they're finding more about snow structure and and uh, not just taking one class and saying I'm good. That there becomes sort of a uh, I think a camaraderie amongst these individuals who well, I'm level two, or rather I'm I'm AVI level two certified and. And people look up look up to you a little bit more, and 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 uh, so I think you're going to start seeing more and more of that. But as I said, those those classes are not necessarily uh, widely given, uh, and so I think that's one of the issues too. I think any any knowledge is good if you can just learn. I, I need I need to find a safe route in and out, um, and I need to l- learn how to use my gear. Um, you're at least ahead of m- most of the people who are going back there. And so what kind of tips do you have to avoid avalanches for people who are just starting out? Well, as I said, the first thing is uh, try to try to link up with somebody who you, you feel are, are pretty confident in the backcountry. Um, the, the primary thing is, number one, I think a lot of states now uh, that get a lot of snow in the mountains will have their, their avalanche um, information center. Here it's Colorado Avalanche Information Center. I'm sure you, uh, Montana has one, too, because I had a 
a good friend of my heart who started the Avalanche program at Montana State so many, many decades ago. So tap into that. Get, get to learn where you can get that on your computer, get it on your phone, open that up every single day and take a look at what are the avalanche conditions today? What's the weather like? What direction is the wind coming up? What are the, where are the weak layers? How are they setting up? What's the sun angle? There's a lot of things to consider just on the basics because, for example, Colorado Avalanche Information Center will give you uh, a really good idea, for example, Summit Vale Zone, which is where I am. But the problem is that that, that gives you a general idea of what the avalanche conditions are like. But, but everything is, all of this is localized. So if you go up to Red Mountain and I want to all of a sudden ski this particular line, you better be prepared to maybe dig your own snow pit, find out where the weak layers are. Uh, how's, how's the wind been blowing? Where's the, where are the depositions of the snow? Um, am I going to trigger from the side, from the center? So th- there's there's so much to know, and again the the the, uh, the beacon pro pull and shovel the the three main things you need and and how to use them. And then if you're not sure, maybe stick into a little mi- more mild slope, correct? Like under thirty thirty degrees. Yeah, I wonder if there's like a magic number for the degree on a slope. Well, I think I think I think you're right. Thirty degrees is a good one. If you stick to twenty twenty five maybe 30 degrees, you're probably going to be um, in, in pretty decent shape. Uh, a lot of times we see individuals that are caught, caught in avalanches where the avalanche um, forecast is really mild. I wouldn't say mild, but just moderate. Um, and I think that's because when it gets really extreme, people pay attention. We're starting to see more and more where the avalanche predictions are shown on the news stations in, in Denver. And so the front rangers see that. Colorado Avalanche Information Center will, will pass that information and the, and the news stations will broadcast it. So I think it's more widely disseminated. So people feel a little bit more prepared as to what they're, what they're getting into. So, so are you saying like people are getting caught more in more moderate conditions because they're feeling more confident to go in there? Yes. Yes. I mean, certainly we see it on bad days too, but yes, we certainly uh, see a, a lot of the avalanches I've dealt with or the, the the days have not been considered extreme or even high avalanche conditions. Uh, they've been considered more moderate. But it's a, it, it's a good time to let your guard down. That kind of makes sense. You know, you kind of get a little false sense of security. Mm-hmm. You get out there and maybe you think, oh, I'll go a little steeper this time because yep. it says moderate. And then you just take some more risk. And, and there you have it, a recipe for disaster. So what is it like, Charles, when you actually get a call for an avalanche rescue? Is that a pretty grim experience? As a mission coordinator, that's the that's certainly one that um, I, I dread more than all of them, especially if it comes out um, avalanche with confirmed burials, because there's a lot that has to go in. I mean, I'm going to talk to dispatch. I'm going to be talking to other mission coordinators, to our sheriff's department, to Flight for Life, because we have something called the the Rapid Avalanche Avalanche Deployment Team here, where um, every every day Flight for Life shows up at our at our uh, at the hangar at the hospital. And they will have some discussions with four ski areas to find out what avalanche dogs are on duty and their handlers and what techs. And so if there's a call, they know exactly which uh, area to drop into to pick up an, av- an avi dog and a handler and a tech and get them as close as they can to the avalanche. Um, but now if the weather's bad or if the aircraft's not available for whatever reason, that, that's not something that, uh, that we can control. So it may be one of those, you have to respond to the closest trailhead 
and get in there as quickly as you can. So you're talking about a response maybe 20 or 30 minutes later, you've got somebody on scene or two or three hours later, you have somebody on scene. So it's it's uh, it's challenging and, and nerve wracking for a mission coordinator to, to deal with avalanches. And of course, with avalanches, time is of the essence, is it not? Literally every minute, it's survival decreases. It is. And, and both... And of course, the factor is not only not only the time you're buried, but the depth. I mean, there's studies that show if you're buried to a certain depth. I think the the deepest I've ever been involved with was a, a five meter burial, and um, it was five individuals who died in an avalanche uh, up off uh, Loveland Pass not too many years ago, and. Uh, they, they were doing everything more or less correctly. They had a group of them. They did this a lot. They were very focused on safety. They all had their avalanche beacons and propose. They they met the night before to talk about where the individual groups were going to go, how, were they, how they were going to ski and board, how they were going to access the area. And um, they were up at a place called uh, Sheep Creek. And Sheep Creek is uh, just above Loveland Basin Ski Area, just in the west side of Loveland Pass. And uh, it's actually in the next county over, but because we were so close, uh, we responded and, and we worked with Alpine Search and Rescue to run that one. And um, five people died. And they, you know, they met the the evening before in order to talk about how they were going to how they were going to approach this. And uh, they were walking up along the side, and as it turns out. Um, that was what CIC said that uh, the Colorado Avalanche Information Center was where you were most likely to trigger avalanches. And so, you know, you can do everything you think is right, and sometimes it's it's just not enough. It's just not an exact science, is it? It's not, no. I no. remember uh, when I was on ski patrol a long time ago, we would always say all the avalanche experts are dead. So yeah. um, just kind of. <laughs> yeah. That's that. That's right. Yeah, I mean, these guys, these people have masters and PhDs in snow science and, and physics and things like that 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 study this, and uh, it's it's very very complex. So so looking back, like in that situation with the five people, what what do you think they did wrong? I mean, what what could have saved them? Uh, you know, they were they were going up um, in a line one at a time. I think. In in retrospect, you know, I never like to second guess people because I don't know what decisions they made and how they made them. But in retrospect, looking back, if they had been uh, more walking up sort of the, the windblown rocks at the side instead of being on the snow, because as I recall, um, the, the trigger point at that particular for that particular part at this point in the snow cycle was at the was at the margins. It wasn't walking up the center. Uh, the, the weak the weak spot was at the margins, and that's where they were walking up. Yeah, I'm I'm sure you know. In each scenario, it's easy to look back on and see what mm-hmm. could be done differently. And I, and it's not meant to be a judgment or anything, but more just kind of a learning experience. Because I think we can learn from our mistakes as we go forward, learn from other people's mistakes, and kind of employ uh, different tactics things that they didn't do, or maybe make dis- different decisions as we uh, travel through the backcountry. Yeah. With technology, with the more forecasting, the more accurate forecasting, we have better understandings of timing, storm cycles, snow cycles. Do you think all this technology is, it, I mean, it's obviously making things safer, but do you also think it's creating more of an installation of giving people a false sense of security? 
Yeah, that's hard to say. I haven't seen any studies on that, but certainly, certainly it might be. I, I guess I'm being with the engineer in me, which is what I am. I like to think that more data is better, but is it not? Is it? I, I don't know. Um, I think the data is out there for people to make wiser decisions when they go in the backcountry, whether it's summer, winter, spring, or fall. Uh, about what is that weather? How is the snow setting up? And and that that type of thing. Um, I haven't seen any studies on that, but it's certainly something to um, that, that might be worth investigating. You know, I, I think of uh, avalanche rescue and uh, backcountry winter travel, and I I guess I always think of rescue as being an avalanche call. But are there are there other just like medical calls as well? Yes, we get a lot of, uh, matter of fact, most of our calls in the backcountry tend to either be people who are lost, uh, sort of like the summertime. I, I went up to do a, a hike. I'd never I'd never done it before. And all of a sudden, the, the, the four-hour hike turned into eight hours, and I don't have my headlamp. And, you know, and it's getting really cold. It's now 20 below zero. It didn't start out that way. So, yeah, we, we get a lot of those. We do have a lot of injuries uh, in the wintertime. It's not unlike what you would find uh, at a ski area. Uh, boot top fractures, t- tib fibs, uh, open femur fractures, uh, uh, fatalities, y- you name it. Um, and p- a person falls and, and, and they take a tumbler and did they have their helmet on and their head hit a rock. I mean, they're just, y- you name it, we see it. You're just like Summit County-wide ski patrol, is that right? Well, it is. And, and keep in mind that we also have a lot of snowmobiles to deal with in the county, too. Those of the areas where they are, are used in the county are not not nearly, uh, there are not nearly as many of those as they used to be. But uh, Vail Pass is a big one in, in a couple other places. So we do have snowmobile incidents where people either get lost, they get buried, they get stuck, um, they start avalanches. Um, and they they uh, go over a they go over a cliff they didn't see in the in a whiteout. Oh yeah, and they're they're traveling so fast. There could be a lot of blunt force trauma there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that leads to my next question. You know, you always think of asphyxiation with avalanche, but that's not all the problems that happen with avalanche um, being stuck in one. Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, I've I've seen various studies, and I'm not really sure where where ground truth is ultimately. But yeah, asphyxiation is certainly one, and the other one, of course, is blunt force trauma. Um, lots of rocks up here in the rock. It's called the Rocky Mountains for a reason, and you know, lots of rocks, lots of boulders. Depending where you are, tree stumps. Um, we have because of the beetle kill, which is uh, exacerbating all the fire problems around here. There's also thousands of downed trees, tens of hundreds of thousands of downed trees. You know, these, those trees that died five years ago are starting to come down to windstorms. So you're you're uh, skiing down, and all of a sudden your your ski goes underneath a tree, and you go flying over the top. That's not going to do your leg a whole lot of good. So uh, there's a lot of a lot of things like that. And 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 you're right. Uh, blunt force trauma in in avalanches is a is a big way people die too. Charles, how long have you been working uh, search and rescue in Summit County? Uh, I've been on it for, this is my 15th year, and uh, I've been a mission coordinator for about the last six or seven years. So how many uh, avalanche rescues or call-outs have you been on, do you think, would you estimate? Lots. Lots. Yeah, I, it, it's, I, I don't really know. You know, we'll, we'll go some years and and not really have a lot of avalanche calls and other years we'll have, we'll have quite a few, you know, Colorado has more avalanche. If you look back 50 years, Colorado has more avalanche fatalities than any, um, any state in the union by a factor of two. And, 
and and we are number and we were number one for the in, in the states for fatalities. I think we're number two now. So it, it shows you how how bad a problem it is in in Colorado. Is this just like a mix of having these giant, awesome, gnarly mountains right next to a big, huge city population? Uh, a lot of it is the way the snow sets up. The snow sets up in the Rocky Mountains, especially in Colorado and, and I think to a certain extent surrounding states, uh, different. We don't have, for example, a snowpack that you're going to find in Sierras or Oregon or Washington. And we have a lot of these what we call persistent deep layers set up early in the season. And they get very, very weak as the, as the season goes on, and they get more and more snow t- piled on top of them. And then you'll get multiple weak layers. And, and that's one reason that it's important, you know, the really the people who are really into the backcountry, they'll dig snow pits and find out where is that weak layer? Is, is it two inches down? Is it four feet down? How weak is it? What happens if it breaks? You know what's going to happen to me if if that weak layer breaks. So we have a we have a different snowpack than a lot of the country. And I think that's that's what causes it. Plus, as you say, because we are close to the Front Range, you get a lot more people. Yeah, I would just suspect you have a lot of people coming up to your mountains and trying to get get skiing in. So, um, yeah, but that's a good point about the continental snowpack there in Colorado is a lot more dangerous than say in the Tahoe area, where it's a mm-hmm. maritime snowpack and and pretty stable and consistent. Um, as far as, you know, storm cycle goes, should people kind of stay away from the mountains during a storm cycle? Is that more dangerous to ski while it's snowing? Yeah, I'd, I wouldn't say while it's snowing, but you certainly have to uh, keep an eye to, you know, the wind and and where's the snow, you know, where's the lee side, which way is the wind, is the wind coming from? And, and even, as I said earlier, getting back to sort of the history of the, of the snowpack, what's the wind been like for the last three or four weeks as the snow has been falling? And that's going to help you determine what might be a, a better, a safer route to ski. Do you see this huge flux of people in like the 24 hours after a storm cycle? I, I think um, we we do see uh, a lot of people. I think it's not unlike an alpine ski area where people want to get the powder. And uh, and they have their favorite places to go, and uh, and they want to do that, and that's understandable. I, I I'm no longer an alpine skier; I just Nordic ski anymore. But but that's what I did for for decades. I mean, skied for six decades, and I yeah, you know, I have my favorite powder stashes, and I wasn't telling anybody where they were. <laughs> and so I and I and I fully understand that. That's that's what it's all about. So what what should people be bringing with them if they're you know leaving the trailhead, heading out for the day? Just gonna ski a couple runs. Um, what what should they bring with them in their backpack? Well, I, I would say there there are two or three things that we find uh, if people have, regardless of the time of year, um, that would really help. One obviously is a flashlight. It's amazing how many people go out and say, "Well, I'm gonna go out for a couple of three hours," and all of a sudden, a couple of three hours turns into seven or eight, and the sun goes down, and they don't have a clue where they are. In the summer, they miss the trail because the trail gets thin. In the wintertime, maybe if it's snowing lightly, they can't find their tracks in. And so a flashlight would really help a lot. Uh, Number two, I would say to always take your cell phone and put it, either turn it off or put it into airplane mode. When you're in the backcountry and your cell phone does not see a cell tower, it is eating through battery. And it's compounded when it's really cold. 
I mean, I had I had this laptop um, on the rescue, uh, the recovery here a couple weeks ago, and it was about seven o'clock in the morning, and it was in the in the upper twenties, and I was I had it because I was showing we had a bunch of mutual aid teams in, and I was showing them uh, the Google Earth map of of where this guy was located and why it was so sketchy. He was about five hundred feet down, and within. Um, about 25 minutes, my battery was dead, and it, and it started out as 100%. So cold weather kills batteries. And you know what? Do you really want that phone call when you're in the backcountry? I can't I can't tell you how many times as a mission coordinator, the first words out of the person's mouth who's on the phone is, I got to speak fast because I only have 5% of my battery left. And, and the third thing is get a, a good um, GPS app. Like Gaia GPS, <laughs> like Gaia, exactly. <laughs> like, like yeah, and, and and I didn't I didn't say that specifically to plug you, plug you, but it is absolutely correct. <laughs> People don't understand that a good GPS app can save them. I can't tell you how many missions, uh, how many calls we get every year that if somebody had something like Gaia GPS, that they could they could look at that and say, oh, gee, the the the, uh, the trail is 150 yards this direction, and they wouldn't have to call us. That's amazing. Uh, so, there, there. As long as you remember to download the tiles beforehand for your area, and uh, and and put your phone in in airplane mode, and so the the battery will last for a long time. And that it's amazing how many times that would save a, a call to um, to search and rescue. And if they do have a call, like say a broken leg or something like that, they can tell you exactly where they are. Yeah, if if you have coordinates, you're golden to us. You, you really are. You're golden to us. Yeah. And and what I wonder if you're using like a GPS app like Gaia um, on your phone, but at the same time, you're worried about conserving phone batteries. Are there like tips or any products that you could use to help keep your phone more insulated and warm when you're in the backcountry? Yes, I would say a couple of things. Number one is for not a lot of money, you can buy these little these small little portable batteries like half the size of a pack of cigarettes. Um, and and they will charge they will charge your your phone once or twice. They'll probably even charge. I think they'll even charge a, a a tablet. So that's a good way as a backup. I always have one of those with me. Uh, the other thing is to just keep it warm. Uh, we had a guy who was lost up on Quandary, which is a fourteen thousand foot plus peak, and we were pretty sure he was deceased. We couldn't find him that night. Temperatures were sub zero. He was from Texas, never been up here before. wasn't particularly outfitted. But this guy made a ton of really good decisions. And one of them was when he woke up the next, he managed to get some bios down. He got on the, uh, actually got in the snow, insulated himself, slept the night for part of it, got up the next morning. He realized his, his uh, phone was totally dead. So he said, ah, my battery's dead. He takes his battery out and puts it under his armpit. And he, and he leaves it there for about 20 or 30 minutes. And he puts it back in his phone. He's got about 40% charge. So keep that battery, keep that phone warm and your battery's warm. And, and that's really um, that's really the key because when you, when you need us, you want to be able to get a hold of us. And also texting. You know, texting takes a lot less power than talking on the phone. So you, if you call 911 and talk to and the mission coordinator calls you and, and your battery is really getting low, see if you can do everything via text. That takes a lot less power than, than a phone call. Are you seeing a uptick in calls as people are getting these satellite communicators like the Zolio or Spot device? Uh, yeah, we are. We've had several of those just uh, just this season, um, a couple of hunters. 
those are those can be excellent. Um, I've been involved in a lot of calls uh, with both the, the primarily the spot and the Garmin inReach, and there's a couple others out there. Um, those are usually very accurate with their coordinates, and the newer ones, of course, allow you to send a text, which tells you, which tells us what your problem is. Um, are, are you sick? Are you lost? Do you have an open femur fracture? You know, did you fall and hit your head and you're disoriented? So we know going in what we're dealing with. Um, do we need to send flights to, to, to find you, flight for life, or can we send a, 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 just a ground team in? Uh, so yeah, those are, um, th those are excellent devices. With, like, for example, I have a Garmin inReach Mini, and I've always been curious about, like, okay, if you need the bailout, what happens exactly when you press the SOS button, and how does it connect with search and rescue? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple. Um, one that goes, if you use one that goes uh, via the uh, the military satellites, it goes to a place called AFRCC on the, I think it's down in Florida or on the East Coast. The private one spot in, in the inReach go to a place, I, I want to say it's in Texas. Uh, but what happens is it immediately, excuse me, triggers a, uh, triggers down in Texas or uh, and uh, or wherever it is, and they take a look at where the uh, GPS coordinates are, and they will call 911 dispatch in that county, and they will pass the coordinates and all the information they have, uh, depending on the situation. Uh, rather on the uh, device and how new it is, they generally will also have who was the who was the owner. Do they have secondary contacts, which they often have in there, uh, and so all that information helps us determine where the person is and what the situation might be. So it and it goes it goes pretty quickly once they hit that SOS button. It goes up to the satellite and back down to the command center. Uh, very quickly, and they will um, they will immediately contact the dispatch center in the in the appropriate county and get us notified. And so, let's say somebody calls for help, presses the SOS button, or has cell service and calls nine one one. You respond in Summit County Search and Rescue. Do people get charged for that? Uh, they get charged exactly zero. Uh, you know, we're a member of the Mountain Rescue Association, MRA, and, and their philosophy is, and, and most teams, I think, support this in a big way, is, is not, to charge, uh, not to charge the people we rescue. And, and the reason is that uh, if you're going to charge them, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to try to do everything they can to get out of trouble without calling you. And so they're just going to dig themselves in deeper. Uh, I've had a lot of people over the years, the first words out of their mouth when I get on scene is, so how much is this going to cost me? You know, it's not going to cost you anything. And we have an agreement with Flight for Life where the Flight for Life was nice enough. They don't charge for If we put them up in the air to search for somebody, they do not charge us. Wow. Um, now, now, if they have to land and pull you out, that becomes a really expensive ambulance ride. That's between you and your insurance company. But just using them to search or to insert people in the backcountry, no, zero charges at all. I, what I'm gathering from this is you're kind of encouraging people to call for help sooner rather than later. Is that right? Absolutely. And and that's a good point because a lot of people will say, uh, gee, I, I, I'm not sure I should have called this early. And my response is always, earlier is better. I would rather send teams in when there's still sunlight and I'm able to look for somebody as opposed to uh, after after dark. We had an individual, which was a challenging search, and it ended up, it ended up with an excellent outcome. But um, uh, a young woman who was lost uh, on a peak just off my back deck here, and she ended up uh, getting herself into a very narrow, very steep couloir. The challenging part was 
she was totally deaf. And so now the teams going into the field, it did them no good to use verbal attraction because she couldn't hear them. And as it turns out, we were fortunate enough that she had reasonably decent cell phone reception. And so uh, the mission coordinator on that one started doing a lot of texting. And at one point he'd say, okay, now, um, now, now start yelling. And so she would start yelling and one of the teams would say, oh, yep, I hear her. I hear her. I think she's over this direction. And so we would, we would sort of echolocate as best we could on her and we found her and managed to get her out fine. But, um, you know, as I said, every, uh, every call is different and, and they're all challenging in their own way. I, I had one recently where uh, a hunter, um, this, this fall, a hunter was lost and I, he called and he said, he gave the name of the peak he was on and I'd never heard of it. So I Googled it. It was way down the southern part of the state. And so I'm talking to 911 dispatch. And we thought, well, something's weird here. Well, they pulled what's called phase two locate on his phone. It put him just behind Keystone Mountain, uh, the ski area. And, and, and it right smack dab in the middle of a trail because I plotted the coordinates they had off his phone. So I talked to the guy and he said, yeah, 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 that, 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 that's where I am. That's where I am. And, but he also had coordinates off his phone. So now I had three sets of coordinates. Well, we, we quickly disregarded the ones down in Southern Colorado. And the more I talked to him after about an hour and a half, and I said, well, you got to go this way to find the trail. He said, I can't find the trail. I can't find the trail. And I'm thinking, God, what's going on here? Because it was well after dark by this time. And finally, he mentioned a stream. And I thought, oh, there's no water around the ones just on the backside of Keystone. Now, the ones off his phone, yeah. I said, are you in a swampy area? I plotted those. He said, are you in a swampy area? He said, yeah. I said, okay, now, now I see where you are. This, this took two and a half hours. And then, I, then where he popped out, I had to drive out north of town and pick him up and drive him back to his camp. I wasn't exactly sure where that was. So, you know, by, by one o'clock in the morning, I get home. But you, you just sort of have, they're all puzzles. And you just sort of have to sort through the information and try to figure out, try to figure out what's going on. Wow. So getting back to this, this season, Charles, what, what are you doing to, are you doing some outreach or anything like that to kind of head off the troubles that might be coming down the pike here? We are, uh, we're working with uh, a state group uh, called CSAR, Colorado Search and Rescue. And we're trying to do uh, some outreach and th th we're working at looking at television, radio, newspapers, uh, whatever we can do to inform people that might use the backcountry of how to be safe, when to go out, when not to go out, what to take with you. You know, it, it's hard to um, sort of evaluate the goodness of those programs because you can't you can't evaluate if somebody decides not to go out you're never going to find out about that if somebody says oh today's not a good day and they don't go out and they therefore they saved their life um their own life you, you don't know how to there's no way to evaluate that so all you can do is hope that that there's enough people uh that will listen to these spots and and take advantage of of uh, some basic training and avalanche uh awareness that that, that it will it will help do you want to point people to certain resources, maybe online or um, where they could go to just kind of check in with some avalanche um, information? Well, I think uh, I think everybody needs to uh, needs to talk to maybe their local search and rescue group, uh, local community colleges. Uh, can be a good place. They might have some uh, some avalanche courses. I know ours does. The problem is you're going to find is they're filling up very quickly because a lot of people are are, are anticipating going in the backcountry. 
if, if your state has uh, an avalanche um, group like ours does, Colorado Avalanche Information Center, and I'm pretty sure that Montana does, I think a lot of these states do, talk to them, see if they might have some uh, some idea of where you can go. Talk to, talk to the upper end sporting shops, the ones that specialize in backcountry gear, um, that, that really focus on uh, on, on the, the serious backcountry traveler. Uh, they, some of those shops will run, uh, maybe may running some, sh uh, some uh, quick classes, like a weekend or either a Saturday or Sunday or both classes. Um, and there are some, I think there are some good uh, resources online. It's just sort of uh, going through and finding out the ones that best suit you. And maybe, do you have any advice? Maybe people should dial it back a little bit in the backcountry. Don't ski like you're at the resort. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, be, be careful out there. Um, there's a, there, there's a, a video, which you may have seen. I don't remember the exact name of it. Some, it's called something like 10 More Turns or something like that. And it's about a bunch of people who went into a backcountry uh, back hut, and they're having a great time. And, and on the last day, they decided to go out, and, uh, and they all talked about avalanche awareness. And they were very, they were, they were very aware of it. They got a whole bunch of snow overnight. And they said, well, instead of staying to this terrain, let's just hike up so we can get about 10 more turns. Well, it goes from there. And it was, it was, very, it was very tragic. And so, you know, don't, don't, don't get caught up in the moment. It's, it's sort of like, don't get in the summit. We in, in the summer, we talk about don't get summititis. Don't say, I, I, have to, I have to make that summit regardless of the fact that I feel bad. I'm, in, I'm out of energy. The rain's coming in. The, the lightning's hitting all around me. I, I have to make the summit. It's the same thing in the winter. Uh, don't, get, don't get caught up in the fact, I want to make it to the top of that uh, peak over there and get these turns. Or I think I can just get a few more turns if I do this, this or that. And, and you sort of throw away all of the discussions that you've had previous with your, with your buddies. So that's kind of like summit fever, right? And that's the human factor, I guess I would say. And the um, Lorelei, the swan song of you know, <laughs> right. summit calling you to the top. Yes, yeah. exactly. But it, but it's a true thing. There's there's something uh, to be said about the human factor and just kind of overcommitment to your plan. So are you saying people should be flexible? Um, I think they should be very flexible. Uh, keep an eye on the weather. Uh, take a look at the snow snow conditions. You know what? If you're hiking in. And you see some uh, some shoot that's run within the last day or two. There's a message there. Uh, I, I was up at an avalanche where, fortunately, nobody was caught—a large avalanche up on Loveland Pass. And as we cleared that to make sure nobody was caught, as one of the sheriff's deputies and I were about to get in our vehicle and walk away, two snowboarders popped up, and and I said, "Well, wh where are you going?" They said, "Well, see that great big avalanche right there?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, right next to it is this." which is great looking pristine snow and the sheriff's deputy and i look at each other and say, are you kidding me i mean they didn't they didn't have the wherewithal to look at the bigger picture what just went on around them I mean, okay. huge avalanche now did these two snowboarders did they have a beacon shovel probe uh, no <laughs> well <would> no <laughs> no oh man so this this right here is exactly what you're talking about what you're worried about that particular scenario Exactly. That, that's exactly right. Yeah, really be aware of what's going on around you. And that's what bars us on search and rescue. The reason we had uh, a fatality on Red Peak that it took us three days to get the get the body out, a recovery this, this spring, was because the, the avalanche conditions were so bad and the weather was so bad 
Um, it took us it took us an extra two days after we located the person to be able to get teams in there to, to get him out. So it's yeah it's something that concerns us and uh, don't don't put yourself in jeopardy and don't put rescuers in jeopardy. I think a great way to wrap this up would be: Is there one story? Is there one rescue that stick that sticks out in your mind? Um, I, I think I think the one that, that was the most traumatic was the one where the five people died on Sheep Creek. Um, the one that is the worst uh, was the one where a young lad died on a snowmobile. Uh, he was on a snowmobile. Um, probably it was a rental. Probably shouldn't have been on it. He was too young. Did not have the appropriate uh, attire, and hit a tree. So it's it's the kids like that that their parents are making the decisions for them. And and there's a lot of kids that are going to be going out in the backcountry. So parents need to be aware of make good decisions for your family, not just yourself, but your family too. You know, we have so many we have so many rescues here. It's it's really hard to pick out one because but there there's there are a lot of them. But uh, unfortunately. The ones that stick out in your memory the most tend to be uh, ones that are tragic. But we've had a couple in the last year in a place called 10 Mile Traverse between Frisco and Breckenridge, which is way high up, very rotten rock. And we had one um, recently where uh, just a summer where a, a woman fell. And if she had fallen another five or six feet, she would have definitely died. Um, but she managed to not fall at extra five or six feet. And we got up there. We had a, we had a long line, um, a hoist operation from a National Guard Blackhawk. We had flight for life involved, uh, trying to balance all those, all those assets to get this woman out of there. She survived. Um, she was in the hospital for a while. She survived. And, oh, by the way, at the same time, we were doing a major search uh, 15 miles away, uh, for a lost uh, soldier who was off one of the uh, one of the uh, army bases and was lost, uh, both those are going on at the same time. So uh, it it definitely stressed our team. But yeah, she was she was fine. But but balancing flight for life and a Black Hawk helicopter is always as a mission coordinator is the is an exciting, challenging time. Wow, it's amazing to hear this. I mean, I I guess the big thing to say is obviously a huge thanks to you and search and rescue for everything you do. <laughs> Well, we, you know, everybody does it for a different reason. I, do, I I'm retired. Um, I like to give back. I was raised in Colorado before I moved away to California for my career, and then came back. and And I like like giving back to the community. There's, if you if you find somebody who's lost in the mountains and they think they're going to die out there, they may be 50 feet off the trail, but if you can't find the trail, you can't find the trail. And and I've found people that are just tears flowing down their face. They think they're going to die, and and you find them. And, and they're fine. And, and it's a cool feeling. It's, it's nice to find people like that. Yeah, absolutely. And you get to experience that so many times over the years. It's It's got to be an amazing feeling. It's a reward of the job, the perk. Yes, it is. The it good is. stories, right? The yeah, we're not doing it. We're not doing it for the pay. <laughs> yeah, all, all volunteer staff, right? Uh, 100% volunteer. Even the board members are the same people you're going to find going in the field. So, yep. Wow. Well, thank you for donating your time. That's that's making the backcountry safer for sure. Yep. And thank you for all the information that you've given us, Charles. We really appreciate it. And uh, we wish you the best of luck this year and to everybody who's going out there into the backcountry. Yes. Well, thank you very much. Stay safe out there. We will. Thank you.
huge thank you to Charles for being on the show and a big thank you to everyone who works in search and rescue. Your efforts are appreciated and we thank you for helping to keep us all safe in the backcountry. Again, if you're a member of search and rescue, you and your entire team can get Gaia GPS for free. Just go to GaiaGPS.com slash emergency dash response to get started. Now, coming up in two weeks on our next episode in the winter series, Mary and I are going to be sitting down with Bruce Tremper, one of the foremost experts on avalanches and avalanche safety. He has written books on staying alive in avalanche country, has served for over 30 years working for avalanche centers in Montana, Alaska, and Utah, and has personally survived being in an avalanche. So we're going to be discussing with him snow science, avalanche safety, including what to do if you're ever caught in an avalanche, and how to follow what he calls the low-risk travel ritual and the human factor that plays into staying alive and safe from avalanches. A great and informative show coming up in two weeks, so make sure to check that out. In the meantime, while eagerly awaiting for our show with Bruce, a couple things you can do. First, make sure you check out our previous episodes from the spring and summer, including our most recent episode with Courtney DeWalter. Me and our guest co-host Abby Levine had an absolute blast with her, so you're going to want to make sure to check out that show. And also, as a side note, Thank you to everyone who's left a rating and review for the show on Apple Podcasts. It's really appreciated. And if you haven't done that yet, we humbly request you do the same. It helps the show get noticed and lets us know what we need to keep the show running at the highest caliber. Secondly, don't forget to check out our new Instagram page, at Out and Back Podcast. And then third and finally, as a last reminder, don't forget to head over to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast to snag that sweet 50% discount on a Gaia GPS membership. All right, everyone, this is Shanti. We hope you all have a great and happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you all in two weeks on the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. See ya. See ya.